Hey, welcome to our God and Money series. My name is Josh, I'm one of the pastors at Branch Life, and this series is designed to answer the question, how do you get really, really rich? Of course, true riches do not come from the amount of money in our bank account, but it comes from God, and God tells us a lot about how to handle money in a way that's super freeing. This series will be an encouragement to you, so we hope you'll stick around through it and check out the other episodes. Before you log off, make sure to fill out your connection card. Let us know that you've been a part of this series in some way, and you can do that anytime at branchlife.church. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the series. All right, all right, man. I'm excited to jump into God and Money Week 2. I'm excited for the month of May. It's going to be an exciting May here at Branch Life Church, and uh, we hope that you guys will participate. So if you'd like to be a part of the baby dedications, put that on your card. If you're ready to get baptized, put that on your card. We're going to be doing that this month. If you're ready to join, put that on your card. We're going to be celebrating new members. We're signing up kids for kids camp. All kinds of things are happening in the month of May. And so we hope that you'll uh, continue to stay tuned in through the rest of this God and Money series. We'll be launching a new series at the end of the month called Hurt. And we want to talk more about what, what to do on those seasons when life Hurts, but today we're in the series of God and Money. So that reminds me of a story that I heard. There's a, a counselor that I heard about who did all kinds of counseling, and he would have people come into his office, and, and they'd want to talk to him about the troubles they were going through. Quite often, people would come in with anxiety. They'd come in with, with uh, concerns about the future, uh, loved ones, or marriage problems. There's a particular husband and wife that came in, and they sat down with the marriage counselor, uh, with the counselor, and, and he he said, how can I help you today? And the husband and wife said, I, I just don't feel like we have the same love for each other that we used to have. I think we're falling out of love. Hey, which that's a problem in a marriage, right? You want to stay in love. You want to keep falling. So uh, the marriage counselor said, great. I don't need to hear anything else. I'm going to give you one homework assignment. And you're going to come back next week. And they said, all right, give us the homework assignment. I would like you both to bring to me all of your spending receipts. And they looked at each other, and they said, uh, excuse me? I'd like your receipts. Give me your credit card list. I want to know everything that you spent money on the last several months. I want to see the whole list. And they said, pardon, pardon me for asking, but why do you want to see what we've spent our money on? And he said, when I see what you've spent your money on, I will have learned everything I need to know about what you love. What an assignment. What a challenge. Have you ever thought about if somebody would look down your receipts, they'd get your credit card statements, they'd see where you're spending your money, they'd look at your budget, and if you actually look back and started like counting every penny, know where every dollar went, would it interpret for us your heart and what you are in love with? Today we're talking about that very thing in money, God and money part two. And the series is all about this theme the idea is we don't believe that money makes you rich, but that God does. And if God is the one who truly makes us rich, both, both financially, but also with the abundance of life that he offers us, is if true riches comes from God, how can I lean into what God says about money in my life? And God is going to talk a lot about the heart, especially in this section. We're in week two of God and Money, based on the resource by the same name, a book that we've encouraged you to get, God and Money, uh, written by two people who I, I struggle with their last names, so I don't say them. So this is a, a, a good resource for you to grab and get your hands on. In week two, we're looking at the foundation of managing our money 
particularly from the New Testament. So today we're going to jump in the New Testament. Now, the New Testament's a little bit easier than the Old Testament. If you want to see what we learned from the Old Testament, go back to last week's session. But the New Testament is all centered around Jesus, right? We have the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and it's all about the life of Jesus. It's a biography of who Jesus is, a real-life true story of a carpenter uh, turned prophet turned God right? And, and he rose from the dead. So everything he says matters. And so we're going to look at what Jesus says about money. And then the rest of the New Testament is Jesus's followers reflecting what Jesus already said. So the main thing we're going to see today is in the New Testament, Jesus on money. And so from the first section of the New Testament, the gospels, that's the genre that we find in, in the first section of the New Testament, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about money. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 6. So the first book of the New Testament, we spent the last better part of the last year in Matthew as a church. And so this is something that we've looked at in Matthew chapter 6 in a series we called The Good Life. We saw Jesus' teaching. And in the beginning of his very first and largest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brings it up right away the idea of wealth, the idea of poverty. In the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they will receive the kingdom of God. And as he goes on with the sermon, in chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Jesus says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give, give to the needy, and do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your gift may be in secret, as your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this is kicking us off to a larger conversation, and Jesus is teaching about giving to the poor and the needy. Here's the presupposition in Jesus' teaching, that you give to the poor and needy. Notice he didn't give the command, you must give. He said, when you give. I'm assuming that my followers, this is Jesus, right, will be generous givers. That was all about that we learned in the Old Testament. That comes from the law, that comes from the wisdom books, that comes from the prophets. He said, radically give. Don't assume what God gives you is for you, remember? Assume that it's for other people. And so we're going to be givers. So then Jesus comes and he builds on that and he says, when you give, he says, give in secret. I'm assuming that you're givers. He goes on then and teaches us about the Lord's Prayer, right? Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. He then talks about fasting. And as soon as he gets through those core principles of, of connecting with God, he goes right back to money. So if you jump down to verse 19, Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moths nor rust destroy. And thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You jump down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. Man, Jesus launches off at the very beginning of his teaching, at the very beginning of his ministry, with this moment where he talks about your heart and its connection to money. And he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And where does God want your heart? He wants your heart invested in the kingdom of God. Put your treasure, put your heart on things above, not things here on earth. In other words, Jesus is teaching right off the, right off the onset that we need to invest in God's kingdom. We need to be investors in God's kingdom. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you are in the stock market? You've got mutual funds, you've got, you've got bonds, you've got accounts, you've got 401ks, you've got retirement plans, right? You've, you've got investments, and if you're in the stock market, let me just say this, after the month that we've had, I'm so sorry for what has happened to you. Like, like the stock market is down, and some of you are like, I haven't been paying attention. We're like down, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of points. This is the worst month for the stock market since, not since the pandemic, but since 2008. And if, if I was investing in the stock market, I'd be sad, I'd be discouraged. That's why at the Great Depression in Wall Street, when, when the stock market fell apart, when our economy crashed, there was people who were investors who jumped out of high-story buildings and took their own lives. Because they were invested completely and 100% in earthly treasure. Now, I'm in the stock market. I have been ever since I was a teenager. I had, I had grandparents, excuse me, great-grandparents who left an inheritance that was meant to be invested. So ever since I was a teen, I was kind of paying attention. It's not a lot, right? But it's there. And so I kind of like track with the stock market. It's not bad to be in the stock market, but God says there's something better to invest in. Invest in the kingdom of God. Set your heart in the kingdom of God. And let that be a priority in your life because... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's another way to think about this. Your budget reveals your heart. So now it's time. It's time to break out your bank accounts. It's time to break out your credit card receipts, theoretically. And let's look at what you love. How are we going to figure that out? We're going to figure that out by seeing what you spend your money on. So if I was going to go through your accounts or some counselor was going to come in and go through your accounts, what would they assume you love? Would it be your kids? Do you spend a lot of time and effort and money and finances on your kids? My kid, Lainey, joined a lacrosse team, which is fantastic, and it's also costing us money, right? We got to buy the cleats. We got to buy the lacrosse sticks. We got to buy the uniform. We got to pay for the tournament fees. We got to buy the shirt that comes with the tournament fees. We got uh, to do all of these things before she gets a moment of playing time. And, and she's in, and so I, we love Lainey, we love what she's doing, so we pay for those things. And she is in our bank account, she's in our receipts, she's costing us money. Do, do you spend money on uh, cars? Have you, have you ever seen any of those shows where they walk into someone who's famous, his garage, I won't name any names, Jane Leno? And when you go into Jay Leno's garage, and I wasn't going to say his name, so I won't say Jay Leno again. You go into it, and you open it up, and, and there are cars for days. I mean, rare, first off the assembly line, only one of a kind. There's, there's, the, there's the special celebrity cars that were made famous, and 
each one of those cars, when I look at those cars, I'm adding up numbers. I'm like, that's triple digits, right? That's, that's thousands, that's tens of thousands, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. That could be a million dollar car. And he's got miles of them. Guess what that guy who will not be named loves? Cars. But gals, you may not think you have the same addiction to things like Jay Leno, I mean that guy does. But I heard it said that if you want to get the, the nicest house and you want to make the, the richest ladies happy, you've got to make sure that there's a shoe closet. That's a closet that's dedicated only to shoes. Because, and you've seen this on TV too, right, where these famous people who, who love, have all the money in the world, they're in the surplus category, what do they spend their money on? Shoes, and they, you walk into a walk-in closet of shoes. It's like, it's like, I can't even name a shoe brand right now because I'm so not a shoe guy, but you walk in and there's Jimmy Choo's, right? Am I right about that? Just all, there's the Jimmy, is that, that's that section. And then there's the Vans section on the other side, right? And what am I wearing? Skechers on the back wall, like those are, those are, and these ladies keep buying these things. They have the high heels. They have the platforms. They have them in every color, right? And some of those things are expensive. And let's not even get started about the purse closet. What does that person love? They love fashion. They love shoes. They love purses. Maybe you're just a foodie. Hey, wait now. Don't talk to me about my food. Every foodie in the world just went, hold up. The foodie life is an expensive life because you're always going out to eat at all these expensive places where you can only buy fancy food because you're a foodie and that's what you do, right? And you're always going out to go, and, and your food bill, if I was going to look at your receipts, I would total up your food bill and go, holy smokes, like I could buy a McDonald's for that, the whole restaurant. Like what, what is it that you love? And we're going to find out, is it, do you love golfing? Do you love, do you love uh, uh, vacationing? Do you love going on trips? Do you love your beach house? Do you love, what, what is it that you love? We're going to see it in your receipts because it's going to be played out. Now, if I was going to look at your receipts, would I assume that you love being generous? Would it be plainly obvious that generosity was something that you love? And on top of that, would I say that, that you love being generous as it relates to building the kingdom of God? Because Jesus said, that's where your heart should be. And all of us, as we're looking at financial management, how do I get victory over money? If you would come and say, I'm having a trouble with money, one of the things I would do as a counselor, after looking at your receipts, and as a pastor, and as a friend, I would say to you, you don't have a money problem, you have a heart problem. There's something going on with your heart that's affecting how the money is being managed and handled in your life. It's not something that's happening to you, it's something that's coming from you. And so when we're building our foundation on how to manage money, Jesus is going to talk first and foremost about your heart. And is your heart in the kingdom of God or is your heart in love with something that's not the kingdom of God? And he's going to say this, and he said it in the passage, Back in, in Matthew chapter 6, down in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one or he'll love the other. He will, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is basically laying it out. You have two choices of where you're going to put your heart. If you put your heart in heaven, you're serving God. If you put your heart on earth, you're serving earthly things. 
And so Jesus is laying out this dichotomy, and, and let me ask you, as we're talking about money, where is your heart? Is your heart with money, possessions, this life, or is your heart with Jesus, the kingdom of God, building an eternal life that's going to last forever? And the rest of Jesus' teaching kind of lays out these two categories. So how do you know if your heart's in heaven or if your heart's here on earth? We can say that our heart's in heaven, but when it comes to our receipts, we see that we might not be doing what we say we believe. So what the rest of the New Testament, Jesus says your treasure will always be where your heart is. And so let's look at where your treasure is. If you are someone who serves money, you work for money. That's, that's just plain. In other words, why are you at that job? Why are you doing that thing? Where are you investing your time? Why do you have so many side hustles? Because I am working for more money. And that becomes the goal. And if anything would affect that or change that or hurt that, that hurts literally your heart. But the Bible says you can't serve God in money. So your other option is, if you're following Jesus, you work for God. And then you're going, but I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm not called to be a, a missionary. I'm not called to be a, a Christian counselor or a Christian school teacher. I'm called to be a lawyer. I'm called to be a doctor. I'm called, listen, it doesn't matter what your vocation is. You can work for God and have any job on the planet. All of us, when we're followers of Jesus, are in full-time ministry. All of us, when we're a part of the family of God, work for God. And we do that wherever we work, play, and eat. We do that in whatever station of life we're in. And our jobs aren't primarily for our income. Our jobs are primarily for God. It becomes completely different when our heart becomes engaged in the reason we are working. If, you, if you're still struggling on where you fall, if you, if you serve money, then you will be all about building bigger barns. Now, write this down. Beware of building bigger barns. And if you want to know what that means, read Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. In this story, Jesus teaches about this rich businessman, this rich farmer who, who had a windfall. And he had an incredible amount of product and produce. And it was just more than he could fit into his barns. And he had plural barns already. And so he's got all of this extra and he can't believe how amazing his plan was and how it worked out and how great his managers were and how incredible the weather was. And, and all of a sudden, he's got all of this extra overflow. And so he goes, look, I've got everything I need plus some. I can't fit it into my barns. I've got so much. I'm overflowing with surplus. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns. And then I'm going to put all my surplus in there. The Bible says he made that decision, or as the story goes, he made that decision and he went to bed and he didn't wake up in the morning. Because of his greed, because of his selfishness, because of his heart condition, he decided to build bigger barns instead of bless other people. And God took him, took his life. Because he made the assumption, consumption assumption, that what God gave him was for him. But when God gives us extra, when God gives us surplus and you work for God, instead of building your own barns, you build bigger barns for others. You fill other people's barns. You go out and you start doing a, a, the a radical act of generosity. They're some of the richest people I know on this planet have the humblest houses. 
they, they, they live in very normal houses. And that always kind of baffled my mind. If you would meet them on the street, if you would talk to them, if you would see the cars they drive, if you would go to their neighborhood, it's nice, it's great, it's good for their families, but it's not extravagant. They're not in these huge mansions, although they could afford multiple mansions. They just live normal lives. When God gave them surplus, they didn't automatically go, I can get a Lamborghini. Oh, I can finally have 7,000 square feet in my home. 7,000 square feet? What are you going to do with 7,000 square feet in your home? That's a lot. And you've got to take care of it. And then they're like, I can have that home, and I can have a second home over here, and a third home over there. What do you need with three homes? Why do you have three of them? Well, because I have extra. And you have to be cautious to think all of a sudden, now I'm getting more, so now I can buy more, I can have bigger, I can have nicer, when normal will do just fine. What if instead of multiplying your portfolio, you start helping investing in the kingdom of God? What if you start lifting up other people, other ministries, other places that don't have that surplus, but imagine what we could do if we combined our wealth and we're able to move forward together on the same mission, the mission that God has for us. Building other people's barns, uh, by the way, is so much better than building your own barns. Like, it's so much more exciting to see God take the fruit that you've offered and to multiply it in other ways that bring other people's joy instead of just saving it for yourself. If you serve money, a third thing that that Jesus talks about is you'll live for today. In other words, you'll have this idea of laying up for your treasure in heaven, and your thought will be, how much fun can I have today in this lifetime now? And I'm going to do everything I can to make today, my life, this moment, the happiest it can possibly be, because isn't that the end goal? But Jesus says, no, 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 you want to live for tomorrow, you want to invest in heaven, you want to kind of put stuff away into the kingdom of God, and you may never see the fruit in this lifetime of the things that you do. What if God called you for your entire life to suffer and to suffer well? To suffer for the glory of God. What if you live this entire life sick? What if you live this entire life poor? What if you live this entire life in pain? And that was the life that God called you to, but he promised that it would have eternal benefit. That in the life to come, it would all be worth it. Would you be willing to go through that? If your answer is, no, I, I want to have a great life now, then, then maybe your God is money. But if you say, no, I'll, I'll suffer if it means God's going to do something great tomorrow, then, then your heart's invested in heaven. And finally, Jesus says, you give from the leftovers if God is your money. Versus living on the leftovers. In Matthew chapter 25, go with me there. In Matthew chapter 25, we now come to the end of Jesus' teaching. We come to the end of his ministry. Remember, he launched it with the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 25, he's preparing to die. He's saying goodbye to his disciples. He's giving some final instructions. In Matthew chapter 25, he has the parable of the talents, which we'll talk about in the weeks ahead Uh, Some incredible things about how you multiply the gifts and the money that God gives you for the sake of others. And then he gets down to verse 31 in a section that's titled in my Bible, The Final Judgment. 
starting in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place sheep on the right and goats on the left. So in this moment, this, this moment that's being described in Matthew chapter 25, you are there. You're a part of this moment. Everybody's been gathered from every nation, and everybody's going to be put in one or the other category. And it strikes me that there's only two categories. And how is Jesus going to divide? How is this judge going to divide us sheep versus goats? It's going to come back to this same principle. Matthew chapter 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's, this is, this is incredible. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you? Or, or when were you thirsty and we gave you drink? And when did we, as a stranger, welcome you? And when you were naked and we clothed you? And when did we see you sick? Or when were you in prison that we visited you? And the king will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, people that are following after Jesus live on the leftovers. Our, our heart is for the heart of Jesus. It beats like the heart of Jesus. And we give to other people first. But if you live for money, you're going to put all your affairs in order. You're going to make sure that all your, all your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed. And you're going to say, I'm going to make sure that I'm taken care of. And then whatever's left over, I'll give that away. Now this hits home because that's how I budget, right? That's, this is what Josh does. Josh likes to make sure all of his stuff is in order. And then he says, all right, now what's left we can give. What's left we can help. What's left we can bless. And what this passage is saying is, no, your focus is on helping other people. Even so that you have to decide how much can you give and then you live on the rest. Then in verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, you gave me no food. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we did not minister to you. He will answer to them, truly I say, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but by righteousness into eternal life. You see, what Jesus is saying is, if you have the heart of God, you will give first to the kingdom of God. If you have the heart of God, this makes sense. If you don't have the heart of God, this doesn't make sense. This will not be a part of of your thinking. The heart of Jesus is simply this. It's people, not possessions. 
the heart of Jesus, if I'm mimicking the heart of God, I'm mimicking someone who loves people over possessions. And when I would look at Jesus' credit card statement, we would see that he invested his time, energy, and talents and money. He had no home. He had no place to lay his head. He didn't have the nicest chariot. He didn't have a shoe closet. He didn't have the, the, the big vacation trips. He literally spent everything that he had on people. He invested in people, and then he gave his very life for people, for God, so loved the world that he gave. Jesus' heart is for people, not possessions. My mother-in-law says it this way, people are more important than things. And Jesus is, is giving us by example, he's giving us by instruction, he's giving us by teaching this incredible principle that we are supposed to have the heart of God. Listen, what happens with your money determines what you worship. Do we worship God with our money or do we worship money? And your, your heart will determine the direction that your money goes. Now, what happens in the rest of the New Testament? Well, in the rest of the New Testament, the apostles talk about what Jesus talked about. So from Romans to Revelation, Paul and John and James and everybody else builds on the truth that Jesus gave them. They give us great principles that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, and they start parroting and echoing what they heard from Jesus. And here's what the apostles have to say about money. See that you excel also in the grace of giving. Man, this grace needs to be excellent in your life, that you are incredible givers. And here's, here's my play on Dave Ramsey's kind of call statement. If you read the Total Money Makeover, he says, live like no one else so that you can live and give like no one else. That's kind of his mantra. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit it, and I'm going to say this. I think the apostles teach us to live like no one else so we can give like no one else. When, you heart, when your heart is after the things of God, you live like no one else so that you can give like no one else. And our lives are patterned in such a way that enables us, that empowers us to be radically generous, to be radically investing in the things of God. So if you're convinced about that, if you're like, that's my heart, that's where I want to be, I want to live like no one else so I can give so and so else, how do I do it? That's what the apostles talk about. So the apostles then give us generosity guidelines. And for the sake of time, I'll just mention these. You can dive into more in your small group or in family discussions this week. But generosity guidelines from this idea that each one of us, if we have the heart of God, must be givers. We can't avoid it. This is what we will do, and we will do it well. If, here's the guidelines. Number one, giving should be voluntary. Giving should be voluntary. Wait, you said I... I you just said, I have to do it, but it's going to be voluntary. Yes, you're going to want to volunteer to give if Jesus has your heart. But he says this, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, God is not pre-assigning your giving. God is not saying to you that you have to give a certain amount at a certain time and that's the way it's going to be. And if you meet that benchmark, if you meet that kind of percentage, then you've accomplished it. You can go on with your life. You don't have to think about giving again. Once you set it, you put it on automatic renew, then you're done. You've washed your hands of giving. You can now go and live. No, no, no. That's not how it works. This is voluntary. You must be determining in your heart how you're going to give to God. 
out of what God has blessed you, how can you bless others? And that's an ongoing discussion that you're always going to have. In the Old Testament, we said that the tithing principle was like a 23% thing when you added in all the festivals. And in the New Testament, God doesn't give you a tithe. He just says, give. He says, give and give generously. Maybe that's a starting point. Maybe that's where I want to get to. Maybe that's where, where I can, but that don't stop there. Give whatever God has enabled you and empowered you to give. And when you talk, one of our favorite discussions to have as husband and wife is how much are we going to give? My wife, we love talking about it. And our goal is that every year we get a little bit better at it than we did before. And then what starts happening is, is crazy. We, we, when you are committed to this discussion and committed to this voluntary act, you're going to see God do some awesomely incredible things that you didn't think were possible. And he, it starts with this voluntariness. And, and listen, if you're not smiling, don't give. Because it's supposed to be cheerful. It's supposed to be, you're supposed to be, we, we believe in this at Branch Life Church. And we believe this in kind of, if you look at it from two perspectives. One, we as a church want to cheerfully give to the people around us. So we love finding organizations, ministry, people that are doing good in and around our community and giving to them, giving them financially, giving them our time, giving them our energy. We just, we just think that's awesome and we love doing it as a church and one of our values is radical generosity, so we're always going to do that. The other, the other side of the coin is we want to be a place where people love to give to God. You shouldn't be mad at Branch and then give us money. This is so stupid, I have to write this down every time. We want you to be so excited about what God is doing through Branch Life Church that you are thrilled to join the team and to give radically in this place and th- during this time and in this generation. And if, if we haven't created that environment, if we haven't sustained that kind of ministry that you aren't cheerfully giving to, then don't give to us. Give somewhere where you know that you are cheerful in that gift. Like that, allow God to use that person, that ministry, that thing to, to further his kingdom and give to that. But when you give, give cheerfully. It should be something that you love to do. Giving should be sacrificial. Let me write this down. Two word phrase. Generosity hurts. Generosity hurts. There's no other way to explain it. If it doesn't hurt, listen, it's not generous. If it was easy for you to give, if it was easy for you to do, if it was easy for you to just kind of set it aside, that's not generosity. That, that's, that's too easy. Generosity hurts. Sacrifice is a part of this giving. You are going to have to sacrifice. And look at this example over and over and over again in the New Testament. The apostles talk about this. 2 Corinthians 8, 3. He says, for they, and this was a, a church, they gave, according to their, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means. In other words, they gave more than they even had. I don't know how that math works. If I have five and I give six, something didn't compute in the calculator. But that's exactly what they did. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus and the apostles are all standing there and they hear the story and they repeat the story. Jesus sees the poor widow come up to the giving box and all the other kind of like highfalutin people were dropping in their bags of money and she dropped in two 
little mites, two coins that added up to less than a penny. And she dropped it in and she walked away. Nobody even noticed, but Jesus noticed. And Jesus said to the apostles, and they took this lesson, she gave more than all those other people combined. And they gave tons of money, but she gave more. Why? Because she gave all that she had. And it's about percentages, not amount. If you can only give a dollar, but you give that dollar, you've just given 100% of your wealth to God. And he blesses that richly. I'm not someone who believes in getting, giving to God to get from God. I don't think that's how this works. Don't hear me say that. But you can't outgive God. And I've tried over and over again to push wealth to God, to kind of outgive, to show God like, that we have faith in him. And through our lives, when you live in this way, you will have story after story of what God does. And I challenge you to find somebody in your life who's dedicated to trying to outgive God and just listen to their stories because God provides every time and it's stupidly amazing how it happens. We've, we've given money to God as a church and as a family. We've given specific amounts sacrificially. We've given it at one hand. Nobody knows about it. And within 24 hours, the exact same amount comes in from, from another direction. It's happened on multiple occasions. We've bought other people groceries and only to have people buy us groceries. Like, I don't understand how this happens, but it happens over and over again. Here's, here's, here's the best I can do. They're not going to teach us in school. It's, the, it's called God math. It's called God math, and it doesn't add up, humanly speaking. But God takes care of us when we give sacrificially. I dare you to try it. I, I dare you to take care of it all. Some of, some, of the, some of the, on paper, poorest people I know are the most generous givers I know. And they're the ones that live without want or need. God math. The fourth principle for giving we find in the rest of the New Testament is giving should be to local ministries and to the poor, primarily, first, not exclusively. And the reason we say this is because out of the book of Acts, it talks about the church coming together and they had all things in common. There was a focus, there was a priority that they had on their local body of believers. They took care of one another, they cared for each other, they cared for the work of the ministry that God had for them in that place and in that time. And so I believe a principle for generosity is that you should care for first your local ministries. What's happening here? What's happening in Pottstown? What's happening in the Philadelphia region? How can we take care of our neighbors? How can we be the ones that are affecting the people that God has put us in? close in close proximity to i call it the proximity principle but god also says over and over again when we give mechanically what should we give first to give first to your local ministries and make sure that you're taking care of the poor and i think it applies the poor that are around you and of course there's needs around the world so if you're saying i want to invest in the kingdom of god what should i give to should i give to like St. Jude's Medical Hospital? Should I give to the refugee crisis in Ukraine? Should I give to... Yes, all of those things should absolutely be a part of our scope and sequence, but they should be above and beyond what's happening in the local needs of the people that you know around you. Who's your one? What do they need? Who, who's in your small group? What do they need? Where's God taking your church? What does it need? And you start answering those questions, and then you also, with this radical generosity, start meeting the needs of those people that are around the world. We've seen this happen practically in Ukraine. Branch Life Church is not able to take in Ukrainian refugees. We don't have any here. They're not in this place. 
But there are churches and ministries in Poland and in Hungary and in all of those places where the refugees are going that need help because their job, their calling right now is to be generous for the refugee crisis. Why? Because it's their neighbors. So God has called them to take care of them. Of course, we can support them whenever possible. You must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. You know, as we close this thought on the New Testament, I want to show you this passage in 1 Timothy. And this passage is written to you and I. And so let's, let's end with these words together. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says this, as for the rich. In other words, that's you and that's me. And you're going, wait, 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 wait. I don't got a lot of money in my bank account. I have uh, student loans in the triple digits. I got, I got you know, car payments. I'm not rich. You are an American in 2022. You're rich. You're loaded. I could make an argument, no matter how much is in your bank account, that you fit in the surplus category that we talked about last week. You have access to more wealth than anyone ever in human history. We are rich. And I look at the New Testament and I, I see the passages that are written to the rich. And it's harder for a rich man to get to the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to get to the eye of a needle. Uh-oh. That's us. And I think God has called us all to this incredible, this incredible principle of giving. He says to the rich, be in this age, charge them, don't be haughty. Look at me, I'm rich. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I've got a lot of money in the stock market. Stock market, I'm set forever. Listen, the dollar could crash tomorrow. Let's not put our hope on money. We could lose it all. So hear that warning. Money doesn't make our lives. Put, put your hopes on God. The one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Remember, it's God who gives wealth. We read that from Deuteronomy. The rich are to do good and to be rich, this is something other than money, in good works. If I could boil everything down into one lesson today, in the heart of money management is simply this, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. Be filled with good works. Abide in good works. Keep doing good to those around you and be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for yourselves treasure. So how do I store treasures in heaven? Timothy, Paul explains it to Timothy, and he explains it to all of us, that we're to be rich in good works, we're to be generous and ready to share, and that is storing up treasures in heaven. We store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Our wealth is not truly life. But richness and good works for the sake of Jesus is wealth and good life. You see, our approach to money isn't important. It's central to our spiritual lives. We should talk about money. We should talk about it in our groups. We should talk about it in our families. We should talk about it in our churches. Because it is not just something that we do on the side. It is central to our spiritual lives. Your wallet shouldn't be the last thing that gets saved. It should be the first thing that you give to God. When I give Jesus my life, I give him everything, and that includes my bank account, and watch what he does with it. Listen, if we would give Jesus our money, imagine what we could do. 
If we could pool our resources, if we could fund all the vision and all the dreams that God has for this place and this time, if we could have unlimited access, if, if every Christian just gave 10%, the church would have an overflow of excess. We'd be able to do an incredible amount of good. But so many people hold back their money from God. Imagine if we just let it go and we said, God, take it and do something with it. We could absolutely change things in this time, in this place, and around the world. And if every American Christian did that, the world would be a different place completely. And if at Branch Life Church we were radically generous with our wealth, I think God, the sky is the limit for what God will do and what God will accomplish. If we step out in that kind of faith, God turns around and does amazing things. Last week we said a foundational guide from the Old Testament was simply this. Don't assume that the money God gives you is for you. We're supposed to be radically generous. This week I want us to walk away with this, this thought. When we invest in the kingdom first, people are more important than things. God so loved that he gave. Just imagine what we could do if we could come together and give God all of it. Watch this video. Over three billion people right now in the world have little to no knowledge of the gospel or access to the gospel. Like practically what that means is for over three billion people, they will be born, live, and die without ever even hearing the good news of God's love in Jesus. Just let that soak in. Three billion people who are right now on a road that leads to an eternal hell. And nobody's even told them how they could have eternal life in heaven through Jesus and his love for them. Certainly this must change. This cannot be tolerable for us who believe this gospel, who have this good news in our hearts, who have eternal life with God in heaven to live in a world where three billion people have never even heard. Now, on one hand, that, that number, I mean, how do you begin to wrap your mind around three billion people? That number can just be overwhelming to us. Weigh us down with just the need in a way that we're almost paralyzed. Don't know what to do. Or that number can overwhelm us with the opportunity that you and I have to make the gospel known among men, women, children in the world who've never heard it before, to make it known among them for the first time. That's what Urgent United is all about. It's about a select group of individuals, families, who are joining together and committing to give monthly, to come alongside indigenous believers, so brothers and sisters in different parts of the world where there is little gospel access, and they live there, and they've heard the gospel, and they are working amidst persecution, they're working amidst all kinds of challenges, barriers, obstacles to make the gospel known in those places. And you and I have an opportunity to come alongside them, to go in a sense to places we may never go physically, but we can lock arms with our brothers and sisters through our giving, our praying for them, and together we can be a part of making the gospel known among millions upon millions of people who've never even heard his name. What, what an opportunity, what a way to spend our lives, what a way to leverage our resources. So I invite you to be a part of this effort, to join as a part of Urgent United, to give, to pray, 
and in the process to spend your life coming alongside brothers and sisters all around the world in some of the hardest to reach places in the world on the front lines of urgent spiritual and physical need, making the greatest news in the world known among them that they might have eternal life through Jesus' love for them. Let's spend our lives together toward this end. We know that money can be a big stressor, but it doesn't have to be when you handle it God's way. Hey, thanks for joining us, and we hope that you'll continue to connect with us virtually or in person, and check out the rest of the series at our YouTube channel or at our website at branchlife.church. While you're there, don't forget to fill out your connection card. And if this has been an encouragement to you in any way, would you take a moment to like, share, or subscribe? It would be awesome if you would help us spread the word. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.